0: Hey everyone, this is Jason. A uh, bit of a curveball for this episode. So the story goes, I got this MP3 out of the blue from an email address I didn't recognize, just with instructions to play it. It was a bit corrupted, but after a little bit of cleanup, it turned out it was just a bunch of our friends talking about the Blair Witch Project, so we figured it was too perfect not to run on the show. So Cody and Aaron and Harry and I are taking a back seat this week, and the episode you're about to hear is that MP3 in its entirety. Enjoy.
1: And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Hello, and welcome to the Tri Love podcast, where we talk about the movies we've seen and the people that we've met at the Trilon Cinema right here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My name is Natalie Marlin. I'm at Natalie's Not In It on Twitter and Blue Sky, and you damn fool kids never learn.
0: Uh, I'm Abby Phelps, and I just want to apologize to Natalie's mom and Maddie's mom and Emma's mom. Uh, and I am Good Hunter Abby on Letterboxd.
2: I'm Maddie. Um, I am Corndog Maddie on Letterboxd and Kaiju Maddie on Instagram. And I only found out I had to do a quote five seconds ago. So I will just say, Josh, Josh.
3: Hey, and I'm Emma Yent Smith. I'm a Trilon volunteer, and my username on Instagram is Quilted Quads. Uh, I'm just telling a scary story, but it's not true.
1: uh and today we are talking about if you had not caught on uh the seminal classic influential uh 1999 found footage horror film the blair witch project directed by daniel myrick and eduardo sanchez uh it's currently screening as part of trilon's nightmarish 90s series i believe uh two screenings on tuesday night october 24th should still be uh running when this publicizes although i believe the first one has completely sold out as has been happening with a lot of the movies in the series um but uh before we dive in i'm gonna kick it over back to abby one more time who's going to do the patented uh abby phelps summary for the
0: podcast so, in October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Perkinsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. Those three students are Heather Donahue, uh, otherwise known as Ray Hance, uh, Joshua Leonard, and Mike Williams. Uh, those actors bear the same names as their characters. Uh, and for the course of eight days in the 1990s, they shot... uh wrote a good portion of and otherwise lived through the movie, the Blair Witch Project, which they had been hired to act in. Uh, The movie tells the tale of three students, uh, bearing the same names again as the actors, who travel to the town of Berkensville, Maryland, to shoot a student project on the eponymous witch who lives there. When they venture into the woods, they quickly discover that their maps do not work as planned. Their compass points in a direction that seems to not actually be where they're going. uh, And mysterious piles of rocks are turning up. Uh, And what follows from there uh, is increasingly less and less fun uh, until we get to a house. A house. Is that a good thing? Uh, Yeah, it came out in 1999, was an instant sensation. Uh, I think to this day remains the most profitable film of all time, pound for pound, if you look at uh, its gross versus its budget. Uh, Had a lot of hype, had a lot of backlash as well, to a point that uh, unfortunately is still kind of traumatic in the actors' lives to this day. Uh, Also spawned the found footage horror genre, which endures to this day, uh, to varying results. Uh, Yeah, Uh, stepping down from the summary soapbox and just editorializing, this is probably my favorite movie, so... (laughs) Um, And today we have uh, an all-star cast of folks uh,
1: looking to share their own takes to the podcast, including uh, one newcomer. So uh, would either of you like to start by sharing your perspectives on The Blair Witch Project, your history with the film, and what made you want to talk about it today?
2: Yeah, I can go first as the newcomer. Thank you for having me on this all-female cast talking about Blair Witch Project. Very excited. Uh, so my history about the Blair Witch Project is I saw it for the first time a uh, Halloween season of 2020. So deep into uh, the pandemic, I was making my way through some all-star horror films. I'm big horror fan, but a newcomer to the genre. I think I knocked out Halloween that season, uh, Texas Chainsaw, a lot of the biggies, and Blair Witch. Definitely was one of the ones that stuck around with me. Uh, Abby, I will say, I don't know if it's my favorite movie, but I'd say it's probably top five. Uh, Instantly loved it. Um, And then ever since then, just the lore, the background, the making of the movie itself – I'm a digital marketer in my day job. And so just, you know, looking at the viral marketing campaign, all of the elements just make it a film that's perfectly made for me.
3: Yeah, I can go next. Uh, This is also my favorite movie, I'm pretty sure. I, uh, I love it. I saw it. Not when it first came out because I was quite young, but probably a couple of years later, maybe like 2001, 2002. Uh, deep in the woods, like probably Halloween season. Um, I grew up in a really rural area, so I was absolutely convinced that it was totally real. I definitely wasn't. It was, you know, debunked at that point, but I wasn't reading the debunking blogs online. I was reading all the the very credulous uh, blogs and some of the uh, the viral marketing for the movie, like digging deep into the website. Utterly convinced it was real. Utterly convinced the Blair Witch was was out in the woods, out to get me whenever I walked in there. Um, I uh, am also a huge fan of found footage movies. Thanks to this, uh, really, uh, really starting that that process for me. Uh, not very many can hold a candle to this one, uh, but it's still the uh, just top tier found footage in my my view. Love it and. I got to see it uh, for the first time in a theater last night. It was just a transcendent experience seeing it in a a crowd of people in a packed theater. Still really scary. Uh,
1: I had a similar experience to you last night where um, I had grown up with a very strong familiarity knowledge of just i would say the core beats of the film uh i grew up with uh my mom who had uh seen it uh around the time of its release and who uh vehemently vocally expressed her uh hatred of it for a long time because of its unconventionality um and for years i kind of didn't quite understand its reputation because of it i think i just had a sense uh, that it was just this kind of like craze film item for several years until um uh the the funny uh consequence and happy accident of this is um what spurred me to watch it was um when there was the uh, 2016 uh, remake slash soft reboot of this film that I uh, went and saw opening night uh, loathed and uh, just immediately I had not seen the original movie. I came back to my apartment at the time. and was just kind of like fuming about just how much I didn't like it and was like, okay, let me just throw on the original one because Clearly, there is something here that this is building from, and it has to be better than this. And I am so glad that I used that opportunity to do that, because just immediately it struck me how inventive it is with such limitations at its disposal, how much it's doing with uh, almost nothing being actively telegraphed or displayed on screen and preying on your own imagination as a viewer. And so it became something that like really kind of uh, warmed its way into my brain. Um, and I hadn't seen it since then until last night. Uh, and last night was also my first time having watched it in a theater and um I I had a funny sort of experience that we can get into when we talk about viewer experiences perhaps, but um, where I, while watching it thought to myself, Oh, maybe I, I don't know if I feel the same way about this film that I did on like a first watch. I don't know if the surprise was the main thing about it. And then as soon as it ended, I kind of like felt how my heart had kind of like caught in my chest and was like, elevating how i was holding my breath and uh it is the only film in the series so far where when i got out of the theater i was just noticeably a little freaked out and a little high strung um and so i'm i'm happy to say it still has that effect on me yeah
0: and as for my part like i said this is my favorite movie um i think the first time i would have seen it would have been around 2017 2018 um saw it on a really banged up artisan dvd that i had thought at half price books and i like everyone else i was familiar with the conceit and the lore and the beats and the what have you because of course this has been a pop cultural phenomenon basically since in- its inception um but what i wasn't prepared for was just how honestly almost abstract and experimental a film this is this is a film that is a uh, brutally edited and is so much about negative space and absence of form while also being highly highly uh formalized in its how it's gotten across to you. Um I, I really am fascinated by the contradictions that exist therein. And I think that it's an incredibly rich soil that these actors were able to build on in what was essentially an entirely improvised screenplay um, and a, a method acting exercise that lasted for over a week straight. Um, that you have all these elements uh would be interesting on its own. Uh, but the fact that the movie is also really fucking scary uh, melds with it perfectly. You know, I think that, the, the, of course, it's the old trope that what you don't see is scarier, and I think that a lot of that can... A lot of people sort of just parrot that in a in a hackneyed sort of way, but this movie is really a tried-true example of why that is actually the case, uh, which is one of the reasons that I really do also hate the Lingard uh, Blair Witch for just being like, but what if we showed it, though, on screen? <laughs> um Yeah, I I don't know how many times I've watched it at this point. I have, like, four or five different versions of it on my Plex server. um, And, like, numerous different... uh, Just just different readings every time I come back to watch it. Uh, There's so much you could take away from it, and it's never been the same experience twice. And I love it so much.
1: Yeah. Um, We can go any number of places from here. I think one place that... um... I am particularly interested in and uh, folks feel free to raise your hands if you have anywhere you want to dive off of of from here. Um, But uh, to that point, I think um, Emma, I'm not sure if you felt the same way about this too, but um, when I was watching it in a theater, it really kind of struck me how much it is doing with that negative space specifically and kind of, what exists in the frame and what even the frame can be at times. Uh, It really did jump out to me that there are, uh, especially during the night sequences, as things become increasingly strained and freaked out and people are becoming paranoid about like, Say how light or noise will attract certain things, how much the film is doing with, say, completely dark frames, where you're just sitting in total darkness for several seconds on end, uninterrupted. And the tension is derived from what's going to be that breaks this complete darkness. Like, it's preying on this kind of viewer expectation that you have as a horror film watcher that there is going to be something that breaks up the frame. And it's never what I think one of the most. Like subtly clever things that it does that I I know is one of the things that infuriates a lot of people who don't like this movie um, is that there really never is something that comes into the frame like that in such a way that it is that that form of uh, complete interruption and I think that that also extends to kind of what it's doing sound design wise like one of the things that really I think also jumped out at me hearing this on uh, like robust sound system as opposed to say like dingy earbuds plugged into a laptop is that in those night sequences, especially it's doing so much with these kinds of unexplainable sounds or images or these kinds of improbable, illogical things like after Josh disappears screams that sound like him from a distance, but could they really be him? Could they be something that's pitched about into the dark or these? Uh, the the one that really stood out to me is the the sound of uh, children off in the distance during uh, one of the first nights where they sort of hear something in the woods is one of the most eerie things even before they call attention to it because in that empty space where you don't really know what's going on and you know that something is going on, there's something off in the distance, It the the conclusions it kind of leads your mind that's been fed kind of the bare minimum of what could possibly be going on out here it just sends you racing and it it really kind of preys upon that fear uh abby had her hand raised as well so i'm gonna pitch it off to her but feel free to
0: yeah and i won't be long i just want to say and one thing about um you know you talking about the, the refusal to to fix objects on the screen that's really valuable i think is that That is So much of that is a combination of both Chance and the filmmakers standing their ground. The two instances in particular I'm thinking of is, you know, famously the the most intense any of the night sequences get before the final house is when Uh, they're running through the woods and pointing at something and screaming, what the fuck's that? What the fuck's that? Uh, And the directors actually had uh, someone, the art director for the film dressed up in a white sheet who would run by them to, and that's what the actors were reacting to. Uh, And they shot that bit of the sequence, a total of 10 times to try to get it to work. And the art director just didn't show up on video or film any of those times. Uh, You know, it was just a, a pure instance of circumstances refusing to cooperate in a way that ultimately ended up really in the film's favor. Um, and then again at the ending um, you know, the ending as it is obviously is, is very stark and sparse. It's just Mikey in the corner and the camera goes down. Um, that was a- abstract enough that the studio was like, we do need to alter that a bit, which is why um, the, the person who explains the whole standing in the corner thing with the dead kids early on in the film is the one bit of film that was not shot by the actors. It was a reshoot because they needed to explain that. But they wanted to go even further. The studio spent more money than it had actually it had cost to make the film to go to the same house and reshoot a whole sequence with Mike on a crucifix. And just very, very uh would not have worked. And the directors <laughs> stuck to their guns, and kept it from going in. But just the combination of aesthetic principle and also just the woods refusing to cooperate really makes for something special, I feel like, where it feels like both out of conscious effort on the filmmaker's part, but also the film not wanting to reveal its secrets. You have a really special thing where it's just a vacuum.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with how the experimental nature of it just really adds that extra level of unease to watching it. And that was something that really did strike me watching it for the first time all of those shots with the color camera where they were just looking at the sky with the tree branches and bored and scared and just kind of out of it. That just adds that element of dreaminess that really personally freaks me out. Um, and I will say I've only watched this at home. I have tickets to see it tomorrow night, so I haven't been able to experience it yet on the big screen. And it's one of those movies where I want to watch it like every day because I love it so much, but I also want to keep it special for the time being. So I'm – I've really had to hold off so far this season until tomorrow night. But um, going back to that experimental nature, uh, so many horror movies and especially found footage now, it has that frame analysis kind of feeling to it where you know something's going to happen. You have that fixed camera thinking especially like paranormal activity or something like that where you're just like, I know something's going to pop out and you're just waiting and waiting. But like you said with Blair Witch, one, the camera's either blurry or shaking or showing just random stuff. And then s- nothing comes to fruition. So it's that feeling of just tension and tension and tension without that release that I think just provides that perfectly creepy and yucky in the best way possible scary movie watching.
3: Yeah, to bounce off what uh, what you folks were also saying about the experimental nature. I was also really um, struck by the blank screen for a while for a couple minutes, I think like maybe cumulatively, it's maybe a minute maybe 30 seconds but it was really stark in a theater to see uh just like just blackness just nothing on screen and the bits where they're uh running through running through the woods you see like maybe the beam of a flashlight and sometimes you see heather or sometimes you just see grass and parts of trees uh still totally totally scary uh and i was also struck by how like the the experimental nature of like the shots themselves and how there were a lot of shots of just parts of people's faces or parts of their body, even during conversations uh, and during dialogue or shots at the end uh, when they're in the house of uh, footage from one video camera and then audio from another to really make you uh, disoriented uh, as the characters would be. And I almost want to say that uh, it was a case of the filmmakers, like being able to like learn like learning and knowing the rules of filmmaking and being able to break them in such a great way. But I know that most of this, uh, this movie was improvised and that a lot of the shots were just fuck ups. Like Josh talks at the beginning about uh, setting his camera to meters instead of feet and like messing up the, uh, the depth of field that way. And that was obviously a mistake, but it makes the movie, like, it makes those shots even more eerie and, and interesting.
1: Yeah, on uh, that note, I I was really struck by what the film is doing during the daytime sequences, especially this time around. I feel like, um, obviously, credit where credits do, like the, the nighttime sequences, I feel like, are, for the bulk of the film, the ones where really the kinds of impressions that the film has left culturally really kind of stand strong. But um, I think a lot about kind of... Um, how a lot of the film at its core wouldn't work nearly as well as it does if it wasn't so positioned on how well the sequences that stitch together, the nighttime sequences really kind of frame that mounting interpersonal strain, not just from the dialogue, but also just in the ways that even the shooting style becomes fragmented. Um, As Emma mentioned, I like, as those sequences progress, there's almost kind of less and less human life in them as it goes along. A lot of the early sequences are pretty conventionally one of the three actors shooting each other in the woods and they're pretty well visible. The shots are pretty well maintained, as especially as they're trying to, within the diegesis of the film, uh, create these almost kind of perfect shots to use for their documentary. And then as things kind of go further and further on, I'm thinking especially about how Josh and Mike eventually start to break down with the idea that the film itself doesn't even matter. You get these uh, really incredible sequences where um, they're arguing with Heather and they're holding the camera in such a way that they're barely in the frame. Or like um, one of my favorite instances is when they're arguing about losing the map the the first time that it comes up. Uh, you have Josh shooting Heather and you're shooting it in a way where her eyes basically everything above her mouth is completely cut off and it's just this kind of abstracted thing where within the diegesis of the film it's uh showing josh's own like kind of uh, beginnings of like carelessness of i don't care what happens to this documentary we just need to get out of here um but also that um it it also becomes this kind of subtle kind of cue to the audience of uh he as a character has kind of stopped really thinking of heather in this way and it's become this kind of the the strains of the what is happening is directly affecting kind of how these people are able to cooperate and communicate and see eye to eye with each other um and it's i, I feel like in order to understand kind of how their own psychology breaks down over the course of the film and to make the more overtly horror parts of it come off as scarier. You're you need to have these moments where their own ability to just do these average day to day aspects of just talking to each other as people are breaking down. So you can see how they're kind of psychologically, uh, like, um, breaking down, uh, over the course of several days uh abby seems to have something to say with that
0: yeah well and something that i find fascinating there is uh the tension between that breaking down but also the fact that it fundamentally cannot break down because they're in the middle of a narrative um i think that the scene that is the most emblematic in that regard is when josh uh, is furious with heather for what he says to continuing to want to make movies um and he's screaming at her but as he's screaming at her and blowing up at her for still wanting to make this like it's a documentary he has the camera fixed on her face it's not looking away it's held very much in the same position he's he's shouting at her about what her motivation is uh it's the scariest scene in the film for me at this point um but also i think it's where that tension between as much as you may want to get out of it you will never be able to stop making a movie is fixed firmly on the screen um And even after that point where essentially Mike and Heather have ceased trying to escape and are just marching to their deaths, you still have the hidden uh, fourth character in the film there who is the editor. Um, And as the characters themselves stop trying to set scenes, as it were, the editorial hand, I think, takes more and more of a presence, especially Mm -hmm. in the elisions that it makes, you know, you'll see uh, Heather is, is saying, oh, no, my hair's caught, and then it cuts to the moment after Mike has helped her fix it. Uh, or you'll see the moment where Mike is sitting down to smoke, and then it cuts, and Heather's alongside him with her arm around him. Uh, and as much as they're just aimlessly passing time, a, a story is still being shaped around them. Um, and that's also one of the reasons that I think it's really a shame that uh, contemporary home media releases and the DCP that Trial and Played actually... Uh, they crop a pretty good portion of the frame to fit a sixteen-nine window, whereas in the original DVDs and VHS tapes in the theatrical release, uh, the whole film is in this window with rounded-off corners within a larger film frame, so you can see the edges of the frame. And I think that that visual of they're completely surrounded by nothingness and woods, but it's all bounded within the edges of this very tight, narrow film that that they can't escape from is a really really powerful bit of visual metaphor to sum up that whole tension
1: yeah um i want to get to what you're talking about with the illusions too because i feel like that to me w- that that's always been an especially powerful part of this uh, one quick note that i do want to say is um to me what reads as an especially kind of powerful and horrifying part of that sequence where josh is belittling heather, heather uh, like very systematically is the fact that that is kind of like after the initial kind of breaking down the one moment where he seems to be like legitimately caring about what, like the the framing of the film. And it's particularly being used as he's weaponizing it back at her. He's using the means of the thing that he feels threatened by in a moment of particular woundedness from her in order to, as, as this kind of attack method, uh, because he knows that doing it in that way will provoke her in that way. And that is, for me at least, why it lands with that kind of effect. Um, but the the elisions themselves uh, are, are something that's deeply fascinating to me. Um, Abby had told me coming out of this that um, obviously because they had spent a week in the woods shooting this, um, that they came away with it with hundreds of, like over a hundred hours of footage um, and editing it like very ruthlessly down into this 80-minute product. Um, and... It's, it, I think one of the real key things that the film does is as those illusions and as the invisible hand of the editor kind of come more and more furiously as time progresses, you, it really kind of heightens the way that, um, the the terror of it all really kind of comes crashing down it starts to get to the point where you start to lose track of how many days the characters have spent in the woods especially as they start losing track of it themselves Uh, night seems to come faster with like each passing day um it's the, the first day that they're out there they spend maybe a good like five seven minutes before night hits and even as they lose the map it becomes very much drawn on these extended uh conflicts and uh moments of arguing um but kind of as things break down further and as their own will to keep going on breaks down further night seems to come sooner it seems to time seems to pass quicker things kind of seem to happen without much explanation you don't really have as much of a sense of where characters are temporally or geographically. And um, it, it's a really sneaky but simple technique in using all of these very sort of hard edits and jumps in time and not really holding the audience's hand in to render them as confused and scared as the as the characters are.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I know, and this is where I get very protective of this film, is how people speak about the actors being bad at acting, especially with Heather. And I think that might be something that us four can unpack maybe later that Heather is the most hated for being annoying, to bossy as we go out with this conversation. But I think just the fact that we're disoriented with them, the fact that we see those little moments like Abby, when you brought up watching her, her hair stuck, that part breaks my heart every single time because it's just such a moment of realness it's it does not further the plot whatsoever she's scared she's panicking and those are the moments where you know I'm a grown woman now I know this is not real but it brings me back to being 13 years ago uh 13 years old back in my computer room at my house looking at the website believing like 100% that this was a real story um by the way I did think it was real and it scared the absolute shit out of me thinking about being real, logging on, seeing all those creepy, like the waterlogged journal and the rusty pictures of their camera reels. like. But it's like you said, you're in it with these moments and you get disoriented. And like you said, night comes faster. And in the daytime, you feel safe because there's light. There's hope that there's able to walk out to find the car, to follow the water. But at night, it's... It's like you said, it's such a sneaky, perfect way to make you feel like you're part of it and to really forget that you're not watching actual footage of this happening to people that you may or may not know. They look like people you know. Uh, what do you think, Emma?
3: Yeah, I was also really struck by, uh, in this watch, the daytime scenes and how scary I found them. Because as a kid, obviously in my previous previous viewings, I was so focused on the the nighttime scenes, the idea of being in a tent and there's like weird kid noises all around you, so terrifying. Uh, but watching it last night, I was uh, I was really scared during the day as well as you see people kind of as uh, you see the characters start shutting down, start freaking out, start realizing what they're what they're in for, what's going on, and like I realized that uh, like I've gone from thinking about you know uh, something something like the Blair Witch, something supernatural is the scariest thing I can think of something coming after you that you can't understand. But now having more uh, reading a little bit about wilderness exploration, or search and rescue or interpersonal conflict. Now the idea of being lost in the woods, a that's already terrifying, running low on resources and food coming across like the limits of your own like physical abilities is, is also scary. And having like, the breakdown of the relationships with the people around you and the people who you need to keep you safe in an emergency situation like that, even without any supernatural beings, you need other people and you need to trust them and work together as they talk about in the movie, like in an emergency scenario to get out of the woods. But that is is not happening <laughs> in this movie. And so the tension just builds and builds and as they're fighting and fighting more and the next day they fight even more and they're making each other cry. Like it's... Oh, it's, it's real tense.
0: Yeah. And, and there's also think, a witch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and feeling that, I think um, Heather is far and away the best performance in the movie. I think that's genuinely one of my favorite performances of all time. But I think the single most inspired improvisation of the whole movie uh, is Mike kicking the map into the creek, which was never part of the broad outline they had been given. That was just something the actor decided to do and not tell anyone for a whole day. Uh, and that single moment of realizing how fucked they are and tearing apart the fabric of trust that has been established just echoes through the whole rest of the film. And it's it's impossible for me to imagine how events would have taken shape if that hadn't happened. And it's so just incredible that that was just completely plucked out of the ether when you watch the film and you're like, well, this is what needs to happen at this point. Like, what were they planning on doing? Uh, yeah i and i guess that also just ties into like like maddie was talking about the performers being savage it's like there's so much constant work that they have to be doing not only to keep track of their own interpersonal relationships but also fuel where they know things have to go next and doing all that while also lugging cameras through the woods is such a feat that i i can't even process the fact that it happened
1: yeah um one of the things that comes to mind for me is um uh with heather's performance um there is the uh, now famous scene at the end uh, right before the, the climax of the film where it's just the camera trained on Heather's face as she's breaking down and crying. And it's become th- the single iconic image of this alongside uh, I'd say Mike standing in the corner uh, to the point where it makes up uh, the poster that we're looking at right now on Plex uh, on our screen. Um, but uh it's it's so fascinating to me that that's a moment that's kind of become so unfairly derided in certain circles, um, just because that is, to me, the most profound moment of just pure like helplessness that is happening in the film. That is the single most unguarded thing that any of the actors are doing. It's this incredibly close and uh, intentionally unflattering angle that is being displayed as a means of expressing this kind of complete terror this complete helplessness at whatever may happen next not knowing what it is that's going to be happening next and even beyond just kind of how tense that frame and that shot construction is because the way that it's set up in the film is you have heather uh it's the right side of her face and it has it so that it kind of positions itself where her face tapers off around the midpoint of the screen. And there's this black space uh, for us viewers on the the left-hand side of the screen. And so again, there is there's this notion that uh, as a viewer, we're trained to be aware of this negative space that's happening offside of the screen. But even beyond its kind of potential for being a a piece of horror it to me reads as just one of the most heartbreaking things in the film because this entire time even as she's being belittled and derided and mocked and made fun of for wanting to continue on with this project for being controlling with this project for not knowing where things are going or not having that sense of control about her she's still even when she is breaking down pushing through things and that's to me the moment where in this private moment that she's not showing to either mike or josh she is just fully resigned to this fear and she is fully she is fully committed herself to this this place of helplessness and it it's it's a very just emotionally difficult scene to watch in the same way that josh berating her is to me because it's having watched this woman be kind of systematically like broken down over the course of the film, it really does read like this like emotional point of no return.
2: It Just how how much she's berated. And I totally agree. I think this is one of the best performances of all time, but just even earlier before that, when she finds the bundle outside of the tent that morning with Josh's teeth and tongue and flannel, you know, she protects Mike. She doesn't show him. She, she, When she's washing her hands and pretending like nothing's happening, that is just, you know, how many different emotional moments does this woman have? And I think, you know, watching it as an adult, that stuck out to me because, as you've all said, you know, this is such a film that everyone knows. Even if you've never seen it, you know that scene of her in the tent. You know, you know, the basic story of it. But I was, you know... I grew up to think, wow, she's gonna be the worst character, she's gonna be so bossy. Then you watch every single beat in this, and it's just so hard to think of her in a negative light because you also put yourself in that situation. How would you react? You know, if you found a bundle of your ex boyfriend's body parts outside of your tent after he's been missing, would you protect someone or would you freak the fuck out and be like, come look at this too? So I'm not the only one to have to bear this burden. And I just think just to you know underline what you said that scene of her in the tent it's just so unfortunate that it's become such a meme because that is one of the most amazing performances and i'm very nervous yet excited to see it on that big screen just because i know how emotionally taxing it can be
0: yeah and the the central complaint that she you know her 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 insistence is annoying. Like putting aside the fact that like that is ultimately what the film is about. Even if you want to read it on just a uh, redemption versus retribution for characters, I don't like level that the fact that the most widely, you know, the the iconic, but also widely mocked scene with her of her in the tent with the camera is her apologizing for that very insistence? You know, really shows I think that the people who complain about this they they it's not enough for them for even a character for a character to learn a lesson quote whether or not that's an, even a valid framing they need her to be punished for being a bitch which is such a really unsettling uh moment of realization to see that that is the primary lens through which most moviegoers engage with this and also you know to varying degrees you know, Mike pulls it together with her by the end, but that is how Mike and Josh start to do it for most of the film. And it's just really, really sad more than anything else.
1: Yeah, I think um, we haven't quite said it in as much detail, uh, even though uh, I I know this is something that will speak to all of us uh, kind of coming at this from a perspective as female viewers. But um, one of the things that really does stand out as we've been like talking about this is this idea that the ways in which uh, we are expected to kind of go about these moments of conflict or matters uh, where we should be uh, quote unquote experts in something or be able to kind of help guide people through that there's, there's the sense that we have to kind of put on this like brave face and like make it look like we are, even more uh, qualified than we we need to be and to me that's that's what that's the special like power of that sequence is that um, Heather does cry and scream and have these moments where she is going through all these strains but she's still kind of pushing through it at least from my perspective in a sense of like needing to prove herself and needing to kind of make things right and this is that that sequence to me, part of it's part of what makes it so affecting is it is this moment where she's admitting to herself what she can't admit in front of these men and this feeling of like like you mentioned uh being remorseful and admitting that everything has gone wrong and that she's deeply sorry for everything that's happened is that to me is the kind of thing that would not speak nearly the same way in any other context and is is something that like makes the film land for me from my perspective in that way.
2: And I think you know going back to something Abby that you said there's so many ways that this movie could have turned into something so different and I love found footage but so much found footage is you know fully scripted very directed you know there's effects in a lot of them where the story that they set out to tell is kind of pre-written in the stars before the movie is even made. But this movie, I'm sure, and I don't know exactly what it was, Heather's note was probably speak to the camera, you're scared. And the fact that her instinct, you know, as an actress, as a woman, was to have that remorse, to have that, you know, the apology scene to, you know, be vulnerable and to say these things that she's ashamed of. And I, I think that's what really makes it land for me. And it, you know, it goes to all three of them. All three of them are incredible actors, but just even thinking that Heather's the one that gets shit on constantly, but Mike's the one that kicked the map into the river. Like how come that's not said more by people that, you know, have issues with this film. And it's, it's just all to say, you know, it's improv, but it, you know, it's the true, um, intentions or the true you know inklings of what these actors would do in the moment that just makes it so much more real than any other found footage that I've watched and I think that's just it's what keeps me coming back to it it keeps me wanting to have it be special in my collection and just have the tender feeling about it. Emma?
3: Yeah. To compare to other found footage movies, there are so many nowadays that are kind of treated like slashers where you introduce the main characters at the beginning and you hate them all. They're all, they're very annoying. Uh, (laughs) And you want to see them get killed immediately. Uh, Whereas yes, a thing that I think one of the reasons this movie has such staying power is because of the, um, because of the, the acting and the improv, like you talked about Maddie. Uh, And also because Like you really can they're so so realistic you really can put uh yourself into that uh that position or people that you know like oh yeah heather reminds me of somebody that i know or like i know somebody who would probably behave like mike or josh in this situation and so it's it's much more realistic and you know despite the people uh who are heather haters uh yeah they're wrong (laughs) this is very realistic
0: Yeah. And I think that in addition to the very real tension and friction that result from those, these being real people, there's also these incredible moments of tenderness that you're not going to get from a script that really doesn't like his characters all that much. And that are completely organic because of the actors bonding through this experience. You know, we talked about already Mike helping Heather with her hair or the two of them sitting by the the stream. Um, But one moment that I, well, two moments that I think about over and over are one is after the huge blowout and everything. And before Josh goes away, the fact that he still apologizes, you know, very briefly, but still is like, I'm sorry, Heather, before he goes. Um, or also the, the the big one is when she points the camera at Mike in the morning and is like, I just want to show that Mike is here. Uh, I think that's a moment that plays really well on multiple levels. A, because it's furthering the whole film's thesis about being observed through the camera and how it makes things more or less real. But also just that she she needs to show herself and the audience both that this person who I care about and who I love is is here by fixing him on the frame i'm making sure that he's okay and that kind of weaving together of of theme and human emotion is so rare in general but it's really something that you couldn't get in this context unless the performers were so committed to being human and not just these archetypes of you know queen bitch and lughead guy and what have you
1: yeah, um, to to lend to all of this and what uh, Abby was just saying, um, I I think um, part of this film's power, and we can get into this in terms of uh, either found footage as a genre or like where this film came out within uh, film chronology and horror's history, is this I th- I feel like that sense of authenticity that we kind of keep coming back to. Uh, Maddie mentioned that uh, I think it's important that these people are just people who look like ordinary people they they look like people that could be any student filmmakers any students any people who could go off and get lost and have this experience happen to them and because of that it becomes a lot easier for us to see ourselves in one or any or all of them's shoes um but also the fact that this is so kind of grungily put together and the the ways in which it kind of like came into this particular field of horror um, are, I think, especially of note. You have uh, this kind of very uh, DIY filmmaking style that uh, goes right down to the cameras being used, goes right down to kind of how shots are being composed and how essentially the actors... There's uh, Abby was telling me last night, there's a director of photography credited, but essentially he just gave them directions on how to use the camera. So you have the actors themselves actually using the cameras as opposed to, um, a, a cinematographer who was, uh, using the camera when the actors aren't on screen. Um, and then you also have things like, um, just the, the improvisational nature of the screenplay not having an having not having anything more than an outline and just kind of going from there and trusting the actors to be able to say these authentic things and to get the gist of what's coming across um, but then there's also it goes deeper into kind of the ways that the marketing is positioned and i know that maddie also brought that up and i know abby is the one who knows far more among the two of us uh at least on this side of the screen um about the kind of ins and outs of that um so I, I know maddie also has something to say um but so maybe we could head in that direction maddie might also have another direction but um essentially that that kind of lends itself into a place where um it's utilizing this very new idea of the internet as a marketing tool and the ways in which um, it used fake websites with fake historical documents, fake documentaries that were screened on television around the same time. And having these actors who are complete unknowns have never been in anything else before and are just, uh, they're, they are their characters. That is who they are on screen is they're living out themselves at like their own namesakes Um, And it really adds to this idea that maybe or maybe not this thing had actually happened. But what matters more or less is the fact that it feels so real and everything that's going into it feels so real and is weaponizing all of these specific technologies that have this kind of haunted quality.
2: Okay, I would love to talk about that part. But really quick to go off of what you were saying about, you know, the realistic last part, we can talk about this being realistic is just that the absolute genius way of the efficiency of the universe building at the beginning. I don't think people necessarily talk about that part as much, you know, the woods are scary, the actors being lost and fighting. That's kind of the meat of it, obviously. But those first I don't know if it's 15, 20 minutes where they're interviewing people, how genius it is for, you know, Heather to be narrating the script itself. And that just immediately puts you in that place of the reality of the film. And it's kind of lending to what you say, like, now we know it's not true, but is it based on something that was true? Was Coffin Rock real? Was Ellie Kedward a real person? And are they were just inspired? And it's just, you know, I think it, that's also another way that this movie has stayed in power with me. It's just that amazing lore building, talking to the townspeople at the beginning. And, you know, one of my favorite little anecdotes is that woman who said, you know, Emma's quote, you know, this is just a scary story. And her little kid is crying, screaming, like, that's real. That little girl was actually scared. And that wasn't scripted. And that's just another example of this movie could have been so different and how lucky are we that these little tiny things happened, but we can get into the, you know, the online viral nature. I don't know, Abby, if you had something that you wanted to kind of kick off about that.
0: No. Yeah. I mean, I was, the reason I had the hand raised first of all was to say the thing that you said about the baby, but like, yes, most of the footage of the people in the town is just townies riffing, which is again, really fun to me that like with all, with, just the bare improvisation of like, hey, we're doing a movie is about a witch. Go that they were able to again ruthlessly edit that into exactly what they needed. Really speaks to the film's power. Um, there's a really funny anecdote that a friend of mine mentioned in a giant thread about this movie that I didn't know about till I read that thread. Where um, I forget, I forget the the character's name, but the the woman who lives in like the trailer home where they find and interview her. It's like they're like, you know, she she thinks she's an actor. She's a historian. She was so singular that all the all the the kids were convinced that she was an actress and they filmed inside of her home without asking because they assumed she was just in on it and none of the footage is in the movie because they were like no we can't do that this is just a real person you guys dug up um which probably just speaks to there's something in there about you know how there's no boring people and go talk to your neighbors and blah, blah 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 um but to tie that in with where natalie wanted to go next yeah with the marketing um a lot of that townie footage did also end up in the Curse of the Blair Witch documentary, um, which I saw a couple years ago. I think the last time I watched this movie before it hit the Trial-On series, I wanted to watch. I did that and Curse of the Blair Witch and the Scooby-Doo project all in a row. Um, But like, it was in this really special era where not that there hadn't been mockumentaries before, but mockumentary in concert with the internet was not... the the given that it is now and it was it's sort of this perfect sweet spot where the internet made things insanely easy to propagate but we weren't yet at the point where it also made them insanely easy to debunk you know if you had a website and can make it look good enough you could go really far um and you know sci-fi channel where that aired was also perfect because it hadn't yet become the thing where it's like everyone knows that sci-fi channel and history channel are just putting out fake documentaries for rubes you know it really is this landing in a bottle thing where there were six months to a year where they could have marketed this film and had it work the way it did. And they got into the perfect window. Um, I'm not one of those people who, cause there's people who will in a way that I think is dismissive to the film will say, well, you know, the film was okay, but if you watch the curse of the Blair witch thing, it really adds a whole other layer to it. I, I don't think that that is necessary for the film to succeed. Uh, but it does add this really cool layer of not quote, expanding the mythology because i think that that's a, a kind of a, a a reddit brain way to think about it if you if you, that's all you're looking at it as but just the way that they were able to take the film's central ethos and to extend it was in what is essentially a 45 minute commercial again just speaks to the way that they had everything they wanted to do on lock um which is not something that a lot of found footage films can say as far as their marketing
1: <laughs> yeah um to to my note um I've I've always been taken with that uh, like prolonged opening sequence of them interviewing the townsfolk and building it up because um, to me, it's the kind of thing where, again, thinking about kind of like where other found footage movies kind of um, really kind of lay their claim and their stakes and how they're so like rigidly plotted. um, It's the kind of thing where, you're given all of this lore and information and in a different film, it would become all of these breadcrumbs that are being scattered about. And there are some of those that come throughout. There's the children noises with the kids that disappeared. There's the standing in the corner anecdote, which was, uh, as we mentioned, a shoot after the fact um, in order to explain the, the ending and its abstractness a bit more. But other than that, it's essentially all of this kind of hearsay. It's all of these people kind of, using these core basics of what they have been told is a fake folklore to make up and letting it run from there and that like speaks to what to me is always kind of the most interesting part of uh kind of like folklore culture which is all of this like telephone game sort of stuff that's going on where you have uh different people who've heard different versions of the story um you've and they're all kind of giving their own sort of perspective or the way that they had heard about it or talking openly about the gaps that they're they don't know of in the story that sort of thing and it just becomes this uh this way where you're in the kind of overlapping stories and confusions and even like the in diegesis lore of the the woman in the trailer that uh, Abby mentioned um you're given this person who has this kind of within the like community significance and she's just a blip in the narrative the there's this person who has essentially what is um almost kind of like that that hack uh writing exercise thing about like having a character who has like a fully formed story but you only see a glimpse of them um but within the the span of the movie she feels like a completely real person rather than an archetype because she's treated just as a person who passes into their periphery for a brief moment rather than an exposition machine.
2: And I I think it really lends to the rewatchability of this movie too. And it's that first lore part and found footage films can be tough. And I guess any horror movie to want to watch them more than once, especially when you know the surprise, a movie like Blair Witch, where it is a whole lot of like dead air and people wandering around but that lore at the beginning the first time I watched it I was paying attention but the second they got in the woods everything that I saw that first 20 minutes was out of my head I did not remember and I guess I'll be honest you guys can say if you did when I saw Mike in the corner at the end I did not remember that part from the lore at the beginning I just remember thinking wow that's scary and then when I watched it a second time like oh holy shit like they told us they told us that was going to happen at the beginning and it's I think that's another way that this one is just so fun and so smart how they did it. And, and I think the way, you know, that they introduce these little things, it's not breadcrumbs in the way that, you know, maybe modern movies are where I feel like if some, you know, producers, we get a hold of it. We'd see a flashback to that person saying that as they were walking to the woods or they would reference it again, but they trust us. And if we miss it the first time, that's on us, but you can watch it again and again and, I think it kind of sparks that little like animal instinct in my brain of, oh, I want to know more. And it's digging into that conspiracy. And like I said, it just brings me back to being a teenager, like reading it and like, oh, now there's her journal and now there's this. And it's it's just too fun. I just love it. Yeah, I'm fascinated by all the
3: lore and the viral marketing behind this. Uh, I, I rewatched just this morning the uh, the Curse of the Blair Witch because it's free on Tubi. If anybody wants to to go dig in, and they go really deep into the idea that the filmmakers are dead. They have a, uh, a an interview with supposedly Heather's film professor who you know, talks about her in the past tense, like Heather's grandpa quote unquote grandpa is in there uh, talking about her and they really lean into not just the lore, but that, you know, these, uh, these filmmakers, these students are, are missing, presumed dead uh, as part of the marketing for um, I believe during Sundance for this film festival, for the the film, they put up uh, missing posters all over the um, all over the town. So people going to see the movie for the first time during the premiere assumed that these people were missing. And I think that's, Fascinating. I think it's part of like what makes the movie like really neat to me. But I'm still undecided on whether all of that is morally right. Like, to how how okay is it to lie to people and tell them like this is a full real documentary? We found this footage in the woods. Uh, of course, watching the movie, there's credits at the end. There are directors. There's a director of photography credited, so you could kind of figure it out. Uh, but not if you're nine years old and you're watching this in the woods. Um, so I, I don't know, like, I'm so glad that this happened. I'm so glad that we have this, the film and the supplemental material and the websites is like artifacts of this time uh, before everything was debunked online immediately. But uh, it's questionable.
0: Yeah, and I, it's notable that Ray Hance, um, which is what Heather Donahue has since changed her name to, uh, on Instagram recently posted a post where she was like, I, if anyone, should know the value of a good union shoot, so I stand with SAG. Um, and like, she's talked about, you know, she, she and the rest of the cast have mixed feelings because it's something that they're really proud to have been a part of and that only could have really been done this way, but it's the fact that you brought up the the missing posters um, dovetails really nicely into that was kind of the sticking point for her was that they had to pretend to be dead for basically a year, which means that opportunities that they could have gotten didn't necessarily go their way. And, you know, they couldn't feed the house as much as they wanted to. And they would get letters to their parents being like, I'm so sorry about your children. Um, and at this point, you know, they had been they had been paid for their work on the shoot, but they hadn't actually gotten any percentage of the movie's uh profits and when she mentioned this to the marketing department um the response was to tell her to shut up and then they sent her a fruit basket um and after that point you know the actors all ended up getting a cut of the movie's profits as the directors even though they didn't necessarily get nearly as much of a share as they should have if they'd had someone competent negotiating their contract um but even still it the ways in which they went about it really enhanced the verisimilitude, but also there is a human toll there. Um, You know, I think that maybe some actors would be, would be charmed by the idea of, okay, I have to play dead for a year, but it's not something that can be easily embarked upon. And I think that it definitely is not something that would be allowed to happen uh, in, in the current climate, much less something that should happen.
3: Yeah. A union Uh, Blair Witch Project would be a very different movie. (laughs) (laughs)
0: maybe that'll be the next maybe that'll be the name of the next sequel we get 10 years from now is the Blair Witch Project Union
1: (laughs) yeah it's it's kind of I I see it being that kind of mixed bag because it's I like obviously the human toll on on the film itself is the most valuable thing but it's it's funny because like pretty much everything that we are talking about and kind of just even thinking about like the psychological states that the actors are in as we see them on screen, we're seeing them in the midst of doing this for god knows how many uninterrupted days and not having the resources to leave the setting or leave their characters at the door and um abby had mentioned to me that essentially they would get their kind of notes for where the day would go like left at their tent door and so they were being kept pretty much as much in the dark as their characters in a lot of ways and um it's 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 interesting because in its own way it like the the conditions that the film is brought up in aren't that much more removed from the conditions that the characters themselves find themselves in, which is that it's this small independent project that is operating outside of the rigid norms of, like, say something that was uh, conscripted and... um, Uh, greenlit by a studio rather than being picked up for distribution after the fact but it also kind of comes with all the baggage of this is a crew that isn't necessarily taking the same sort of uh precautions that would otherwise kind of be going about there
0: yeah i will say to bounce off that in a different direction all of what you just said is really true but i also think that because of the circumstances of the shoot a lot of the time uh people can even when acknowledging that what, what's being done is good improv they can sort of dismiss it by being like oh well they were their characters they were in the situation so everything is their natural reactions and the, the actors have taken great pains to be like no we, we we were still acting um like the big one is that i that i remember is um at one point they got to their tent and it had been raining and there was an inch of water flooding it and they were like no we're not doing this and they radioed the directors to try to get evacuated, but the directors were uh, at Chi-Chi's, uh, in, in Ray Hans's words, so, and they couldn't be reached, so the three actors marched off till they found this house in the woods, uh, and unlike the ending of the movie, they had Heather go knock on the door, and it was someone living there, and they all got to shower and watch a football game for a bit before heading back out into the woods, um, or also when they meet the the stick figures hanging in the trees, uh, Heather was like, we were profoundly unfrightened, and the fact that we look as frightened as we are on the film is a testament to the fact that we are still performers who are good at what we're doing, um, um, so, you know, not to discount any of what you said, Natalie, because that's all mm-hmm. extremely true, but I do also think that there's a way to acknowledge the extreme circumstances they were in without also then discrediting the performances by being like, oh, well, it was all real, so it wasn't really a performance. Absolutely. And again, I think that that is, again, it, it all comes back to that central tension that makes the movie so good is the constant push and pull between the real and artifice and whether or not there is even any difference that you can make a clear distinction between the two
1: absolutely and yeah to to that matter i do want to uh clarify that um it is as as we're talking about it um there are any number of uh horror stories obviously about kind of how even more controlled film sets have more direct kinds of abuses or like psychological torment that actors go through and so this isn't necessarily something that even that that is exclusive to a particular kind of film shoot or a particular kind of director. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, I, I think weighing kind of what we're talking about, about kind of the freedoms, but also the limitations that kind of come with these kind the, the ways that the film was undertaken. Um, but it does speak to kind of how things have gone that we, we talked about last night um, that, uh, Uh, both the actors who play Heather and Mike are still like good friends to this day.
0: Yeah. um, Neither of them is, neither of them is an actor anymore. Um, They're both life coaches, which (laughs) I think is, is a, is a funny, funny thing. Um, And uh, like Heather has done Ray Hans uh, has done a translation of the Tao Te Ching uh, and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) The only one of them who's still acting is, is Josh, which not to denigrate Josh, because they're all great, but I do think that it's very funny that if you had to pick one out of the lineup where you'd be like, this this one is still acting to this day, it would not be him. Especially because of the three,
1: he has the least amount of screen time just by virtue of disappearing the soonest
0: in the film. Yeah, it's a, that also is a funny anecdote. He was not supposed to, it was supposed to be Mike, and when the directors made the switch, they didn't tell anyone, so Mike's first word of it was waking up in the tent and being like, oh cool, I'm still here. <laughs> I think that
2: it does just add to that complicated nature, though, of loving how it was done. But thinking, like you said, these were amazing actors and this could have been such a big break for all three of them, you know, was one of the most successful films. Everyone talked about it. It was at Sundance and their IMDb said they were dead. So I feel like obviously the psychological toll, their families having to deal with that. But just like what a bummer, like your big break and you're dead. Like that stinks.
0: What we're saying is that we need to send Tom Cruise out into the woods to fake his death for a year because he would relish the challenge and also have the clout to get through it. So it's perfectly moral if he does it. <laughs> that is the conclusion I've arrived at here.
2: Unless he comes back and decides to be a life coach. <laughs> oh
0: no, that would make things so much worse. Um, <laughs> Matt, you're you're glib. You don't even know what the Blair Witch is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my <God. laughs> uh, On that note, as uh, I... I, I think uh, this might probably be a good time to uh, maybe start to think about any sort of like last things that we'd wanted to talk about. Um, I'll throw one out there, which is we've uh, kind of drifted around conversation around the the ending of the film uh, some, but um, one of the things that hit me, especially rewatching it last night is in my memory, the impact that that sequence leaves when they do arrive at the house is such a like taxing and just soul-searing like sequence that i misremembered an entire like other series of beats happening in terms of just like when the two of them get separated how long heather's on her own how long she's exploring the house or how many things are kind of happening in there and what what really did strike me re-watching it is just how ruthlessly efficient it is and how it gives you almost no time to even get your mind straight on like what's happening what you're seeing um to the point where when it does hit the the kind of like last 30 seconds it like it occurred to me i was like oh right that's it that's all they give you it's this unceremonious very sort of leaving you just like scrambling in the dust of what what is their uh effect and i i joked with abby coming out of it i said to my i like if this were a found footage film in any number of years after the fact you know that one of the studio notes would have been we need to extend that sequence as far as we can and we need to like keep having all of these beats that ramp up and escalate into something uh and we even see it with the the 2016 film which adds at least like three or four other beats on top of it's like ending house sequence. Um, Plus an actual Blair Witch. (laughs) um, But um, yeah, it's, it to me lands as one of those things where because of the nature of its creation and it's, it's refusal to really show anything and the the director is like holding their ground in that regard. It's it manages to keep its mystery mystery and its allure and it's um, it's brevity in such a shocking way in a way that a more conventional film wouldn't have. And it's all the more stronger for it.
3: Yeah. Having watched so many horror movies and found footage movies throughout the, uh, Throughout the wood scenes, pretty much any time there was tension, I was like scanning the background, scanning the horizon. Like, is there going to be something moving? Is something going to pop out? Even knowing I've watched this movie like 30 times. I know there's no Blair Witch that you see. I know there's nothing in the background, but I'm still looking for it. Because you really do expect it.
2: Yeah, I love the ending. Like you said, just that it's just it just goes hard at the end. And I remember I made my poor baby sisters watch this with me a couple of years ago and we were all cuddled up on the couch together. And it just, like you said, it just ends. And they were both, they watched it for the first time and they were both just sitting there like eyes wide open and the credits are going. I'm like, wow, what'd you think? Just it's so it's everything. Ha- like nothing's happening until everything happens. And I guess as we wrap this up, I don't know if we want to mention, and I don't want to stray too far from, you know, Blair, which what we're talking about, Are there any other, you know, found footage movies that you think kind of are in the same vein as Blair Witch or follows the same path? And the one that I'm kind of thinking of, and I don't know if either any of you three have seen it, but Ghost Watch from 1992. Yes. Is another movie where it's just slow burn, slow burn, building lower, building lower. But then that last little segment is just go, go, go. And then it's done. And you just kind of end with that feeling of, what did I just experience in this last kind of couple scenes of this movie? And I don't know if it seems I had a positive reaction to that one, if you guys have seen Ghost Watch or not, too. And if you think it kind of compares to the same vibe at the end.
0: Yeah, I think for me, one that's... um... Ghostwatch is is undefeated, by the way. I and and especially as a Blair Witch predecessor, I love stuff like that and the McPherson tape, where it's like it's before the formula really got locked in, and so it's there's this sort of sense of freedom where anything could happen. That's really cool. Uh, for one, that's a lot more controlled than Blair Witch Project was, but the ending still has that pull the rug out from under you effect. Uh, I go to that a lot for wreck. Um, for 2007, I think that that one is a really, really great use of, uh, instance of using geography and horror and like compounding the two upon each other into like this ever, ever tightening noose. Um. It's almost kind of the inverse
1: of Blair Witch in that regard. In that, like Blair Witch is, after a while, the unknowability of
0: the geography becomes part of its terror. Whereas Racket's knowing the geography so well that's part of its terror. Absolutely. And I, in that vein, the other one I was going to say is I think one that's like the the complete antithesis of Blair Witch Project, but also so really successful in a way that I think is fascinating, uh, is M Night Shyamalan's The Visit um, from twenty fifteen, which I. I love that film. It's one of my favorites of his, but I also think it's really interesting to see in conversation with this one because he's relentlessly controlled in his framing and his camera movements in his films generally. And to see him merge that with found footage and also to have like a really a sort of emotionally cathartic story versus the pure abstraction of Blair Witch Project and see how they both work, I think really enhances the strengths of either film when they're laid bare side to side. Um, So, yeah, for the Shyamalan Skeptics, go check out The Visit if you haven't. Um,
1: I I think I'm also going to go for a twofer. I thought I was just going to go with just one. But um, I'll say, uh, to me, just based on my own sort of, like, generational experience, the one that kind of, like, stood for me uh, and still kind of does, I kind of had a moment where I, like, disavowed it a bit, but went back and kind of saw similarly how, like, viciously ruthlessly like efficient it is as a narrative delivery engine but uh cloverfield uh to me is uh well not on the same level as the blair witch project is something that is so deeply fascinating to me as this thing where it lets you kind of have this time where you're like living in these characters like lives for a good like 20-25 minutes of the movie before anything really kind of happens and disrupts it and then it's kind of all about the unknowability and this sense that as those characters, they don't really have the ability to have the context into what is happening and what is going on and what is even possible in the realm of the film. Um, And it does kind of throw in a a few of those like conventional cheats that I do think uh, kind of dampen it a little bit. But um, when I think of say like where the marketing of that film was and how it really kind of preyed upon this almost kind of new internet era of um, doling out little bits of lore and like, um, Un, almost kind of, like, unknowable, like, uh, d- proto creepy pasta things on, on the internet. Like, that's one that, to me, kind of, I think about where I was when all of that sort of marketing hit. And it was just, it, it left that kind of, like, impact on me, like, far after when I had first seen it. Um, and I think, in general, um, in terms of found footage that uh, really kind of left a uh, sort of indelible effect on me, uh, I want to go to bat for specifically the first like 45-ish minutes of uh, this Japanese film called Noroi the Curse, um, which is um, uh, that stretch specifically, it eventually tightens itself into a more kind of like conventional found footage narrative. But um, I remember throwing it on and it's this um, sort of paranormal demon found footage horror film. But the first 45 minutes are this Very bizarre, uh, like genre anarchic experience where it's hopping from a bunch of different mediums and source footages. There's like a paranormal ghost hunting show, there's a faux documentary, there's a game show using psychics. It's, it it, it was an experience. The first watch of that was one that kind of really gripped me in the same way that Blair Witch did, in that the first time going through that movie in that span of it hopping from sequence to sequence the terror was kind of not knowing where the film was going next and th- this idea that the film could be anything and the bounds of found footage could be anything and that that made the anticipation of like what was coming next even more uh, unbearable for me to sit through because It was one of the only times in my life where I sat watching a found footage horror movie and thought to myself, I don't even know what genre this is going to be in the next five minutes from here.
2: Totally agree. I know, I loved it. And I think another thing that kind of relates to Blair Witch with that one is I watched like the crappiest transfer of it on YouTube one time late at night with fan made subtitles and it just added so much to the extra like. This is, should I be watching this? How did we find this? And obviously, with that one, I did it, I knew it wasn't real. And uh, his other film, The Found Footage one, Occult, I don't know if you've seen that. It's not as good as Neroy, but it also has that feeling of this is just taped together footage, home pictures of people's cell phones, or like you said, a game show. It's just, it's that feeling of this could be real. It's, I love those. Yeah, good, good idea there. Good shout. All of
3: that director's uh, movies, uh, I believe his name is pronounced Koji Um, He All of his movies have totally bonkers endings as well. So (laughs) great stuff. Um, For me, I'll go with two as well um, for found footage slash mockumentary stuff. I really love Lake Mungo, uh, which is a mockumentary um, about a a family dealing with a tragedy and setting up a video cameras in their house to, uh, to capture possibly, <clears throat> possibly paranormal events. Uh, it has one of the scariest like frames in, in a movie ever, uh, a completely terrifying and really sad, like a, uh, very thoughtful, like thought provoking, uh, like look at grief and uh, and the supernatural as well, um, and like family dynamics. Really fascinating. I don't want to say too much. Um, and also for something a lot closer to the Blair Witch Project, kind of like hits all the same beats and is very clearly influenced by it. Uh, Willow Creek from 2013 is a Bigfoot movie. Um, But has, like I said, follows the same beats of you're following a couple doing a documentary about Bigfoot, they're going into the woods, there is a a very long sequence of nothing on the screen, because they're in a tent and hearing some weird noises. Uh, Very good, very, very spooky.
0: And I'm going to cheat and add one more because I realized I referenced it, but I didn't actually talk about it. Um, this is not in terms of like comparing endings, which is why I didn't say it initially, but just in terms of broader, um, very uh, aesthetic and thematic cousins to the Blair Witch Project. Um, editing, it, it, its editing style is not the same. It's a lot more of uh, at length and like free floating, but in terms of of visual and oral style. Uh, the McPherson tape from the eighties um, is a movie where this, this family is having this get together. And then what may or may not be a UFO lands outside. And boy, if you want a movie that is abstracted found footage, this is shot on the shittiest eighties video you've seen in your life. And so the, the, the texture of the noise in both the, the audio and the video is such that any single corner of the frame could or could not have something in it. And it refuses to resolve that tension the whole way through and, um, and it made for a really, really unsettling experience for me. Um, and also, just in terms of progenitors of the genre, I prefer to label that one as the first found footage movie and not Cannibal Holocaust, because Cannibal Holocaust sucks. So go watch The McPherson Project, the real first found footage horror movie.
2: Co-signed. Co-signed on that one. Yeah, do McPherson and then go to *Ghost Watch*, and you'll be happy that you skipped Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs>
1: um, well on that note found footage scholars, uh, unless we have any final points on Blair rich project, I think it's time to, uh, put the, the cameras down and we can take a nice long rest for the night. Uh, typically we have, uh, some, some form of notes in, in the form of a game from, somebody
0: else but he is not here he can't do anything about it our Uh, director cody did not leave us instructions in the bucket outside of
1: our tent exactly thank you for picking that up because i was going to make that exact joke and then forgot i was going to do it um but uh i uh think that we can call it here on the blair witch project and wrap uh before we lap the runtime of the film itself uh so uh signing off here uh I'm Natalie Marlin again. Natalie's not in it on Twitter,
0: Blue Sky, all the places. Uh, I'm scared to unmute my mic and I'm scared to mute it. I'm Abby Phelps. You can reach me at GoodHunterAbby on Letterboxd. A bonus I, quote.
2: Amazing. I had the best time talking with you guys about this. I'm Maddie. Thank you for having me. And I'm corn dog Maddie on Letterboxd. Uh, go eat a corndog. Thank you. And Kaiju Maddie on Instagram.
3: I've been Emma Yuntsmith. You can find me at the Trilon Cinema or at Quilted quads on Instagram.
0: And Jason, if you find these tapes, just pick a good GIF. We don't care which one. <laughs> it's all—it's on you now. There's no time left for us. Preferably, pick four GIFs
1: of uh, just the black screen so that it gets the full effect of uh, the audiovisual combination that that occurs therein. Um, but otherwise, uh, we'll see you in a year from now when this footage is found. So take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. We can't be on any more podcasts because we're dead. This sucks.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, folks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the last sound you hear before something hits your head and the camera falls to the floor. <laughs>